CoinWorld Plus is your new way to collect. Manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at CoinWorldPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store. Welcome to the CoinWorld Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. As I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. Hard to believe here we are on the verge of the month of December. Where has the year gone? And above all else, here it is. Episode 140. Well, welcome to the Coin World Podcast. As we are ready with another episode for us, as the holiday season is upon us, thank you for listening to our Count Your Blessings special last week. I'm Larry Jewett. And I'm Jeff Stark. And um, yeah, where has the year gone? I, I think about where I was a year ago, both literally and figuratively, how great this year has been. Uh, despite all the many challenges, I was able to spend Thanksgiving uh, last weekend, last uh, you know week, with some family, and I didn't have to go nearly as far as I used to go. I've uh, made some friends and connections uh, here in St. Louis. There's there's more shops and shows uh, for me to attend uh, to further my education in in collecting pursuits. Wow, what a, what a year! And and hard to believe. We are more than 92% of the way through it. We're staring at a new year here soon. That's, um, that's amazing. Yes, indeed. And you think back to a year ago, as we consider what the future holds, it's amazing to think that just, uh, just a few months ago, it wasn't reality, but it is now. And it's Coin World Plus, our sponsor. And it's going stronger and stronger. It got a lot of attention uh, in mid-November at the uh, Baltimore The Whitman Show. So we thank Coin World Plus for being a part of it. But while we're not ready to sing Old Lang Syne yet onto the uh, year 2021, it is a time of reflection as it tends to be, as you know that it's coming up. And there's a lot of excitement. When A year ago, the uncertainty was still very much real. We didn't know. I mean, these shows that were planned for January were by the wayside already by this point last year. But now it's a totally different scenario. As we're talking, we're making plans, making reservations, all kinds of things about upcoming shows in Orlando and New York. And uh, the excitement is starting to get back to that level that we know and know so well. And it brings a little bit of comfort with it as well. So it's just the idea that as we get into December, well, one of the things I tend to notice is while we're thinking January, February, even as far as the National Money Show, Sometimes the events in December get glossed over, and that's kind of unfair because this is a good time to be buying gifts for the holidays and adding to your collection, too. I'm always on the prowl for fun stuff, and there's, you know, every one of us, I'm sure, was bombarded with emails last week and earlier this week with, um, you know, Cyber Monday deals and Black Friday deals and there's no shortage of things out there to be found and to be celebrated. You know, we already have news of some new coins for 2022 from the uh, U.S. Mint. I've, I'm looking at January 6th, I believe it is, for the uh, Negro Leagues baseball coins. And that those will go with my Baseball Hall of Fame coins. As a baseball fan, you know, how can you not? 
have those. I mean, uh, it's it's um, that's exciting to have seen those designs uh, released and and um, start thinking about adding those to the collection. What are you asking Santa Claus for this year? Well, I'm putting that list together now, but here's the thing. I want to get this out there before I start getting too personal about this. And uh, don't want to be Debbie Downer with my apologies to all Debbies out there. But the idea is this time of year when we're thinking about focusing on what we're trying to acquire, I think it's kind of mindful that we need to be remembering, too, that we got to watch out for fraud. I mean, there's been I've seen a far too many situations on Facebook about things not being what they were represented to be. And uh, so the, you get disappointment there. And certainly it could even get to the point where you're too embarrassed to give it as a gift for somebody that you intended to give it for. So, I mean, this is where I throw out that word of caution right there. This is not intended to, to bring it down here, but let's be real about this. With the amount of cyber activity that there is with the online auctions, with different types of things, make sure that you're protecting your your credit cards, your debit cards. Make sure you're being mindful and getting all the expert advice that you can get to make an informed purchase. I mean, and that this is almost a commercial for making sure that you uh, check out your brick and mortars too, because while the convenience uh, sometimes is an important factor, the experts that are available at your fingertips right there that are ready and willing to help you and create this lifelong relationship in this hobby. I mean, it's going to be very important as we go into the month of December, we'll be talking about the importance of all aspects of this hobby, uh, dealers and, and investors and collectors and everybody and the roles that they play. Before I think about my own personal, I'm thinking more about, you know, the old saying, it's better to give than to receive. And last year, we gave my father-in-law a few items for his collection and contemplating doing that again. And I'm making my wish list right now, but it's been a very good year for me as far as acquisitions go. And it's gone off a couple of different directions that I don't have that one thing that's going to make me happy. I have several things that'll make me reasonably happy. So that's just where it is right there. And you just gave me an opportunity because I'll think about it for a week and I'll come back next time with a specific for you. Yeah. Okay. It's always my, good to be mindful of the potential for um, fraud and for bad actors in the hobby. I mean, how many of us, uh, I'm in a neighborhood Facebook group or a, a Facebook group that's oriented to those who live in this neighborhood and they're sharing uh, ring camera videos of porch pirates and things. It's uh, an unfortunate reality of uh, the modern world, I guess, and, and you know, the times in which we live, unfortunately, that some of these things happen. And um, I'm grateful my neighbor is, is retired and she uh, is often on the lookout for the delivery trucks to let me know when I have something that uh, is arriving. And I, I had that with a coin order last week where I, I happened to go out there and, and to get a, a, a bottle of water and, and I heard some noise and I opened the door and they were just leaving and they had dropped off a package with some coins. So I, you know, you, you have to be uh, on alert at all times to, uh, to make sure that um, you get the stuff and there's no, uh, there's no issues. 
Yeah, we'd love to hear. I mean, if you think about this holiday and the giving season, and you hear a lot of stories about how uh, people who got involved in numismatic hobby just by searching through uh, roles or by uh, getting something that was handed down to them is uh, another common way to do that. But I wonder if anybody remembers a holiday where they opened up a package and it was, you know, Whitman folders or a particular coin or, you know, are, are people utilizing the gift giving experiences of the giving holidays like the Christmas and like the uh, uh, other holidays, birthdays, that type of thing. Are they utilizing these opportunities here? And, and maybe that's an opportunity there because experiences are, are great. And the experience of knowing that you launched a, uh, a hobby is uh, something that will, will forever be remembered there. I mean, after, after a couple of uses, Teddy Ruxpin wasn't much fun. The Cabbage Patch Kids went away, that type of thing. But coins with the history and with the stories that they tell just by holding them in your hands, it becomes a great thing that has everlasting value to it. And it's great to discover something like that. So here again, circling back to that list. Now I've just added another one in my head, but as I promised, I'm going to save it for next week. <laughs> All righty then. Yeah. Well, you, when you earlier, you mentioned about the Negro baseball leagues coin coming out in early January, another one that uh, we talked some about back around veteran or yeah, back around the veterans day in November is the fact that the national purple heart hall of honor is going to be coming out at the same time as well. So that's another one to keep in mind right there. I know we, a lot of thoughts on the, uh, the military far and wide with Justin Irvin on recently, we are mindful of those who are deployed elsewhere, but, uh, you know, those who have sacrificed and those who have given, it's just another way. And it's interesting to see because this one has taken some time to get there. No thanks to the uh, world situation. And we did, we never know the certainty of the world and, you know, what the plans are. But the, here again, it is exciting to know that where we are in 2021 is much better than where we were in 2020. And certainly the optimism is there for 2022. But those are among the early mint items that are going to be on there. And speaking of the mint, one of the stories we just had, and I don't know if you noticed this or not, but they finally have a mintage figure on those uh, quarter ounce gold coins that uh, were mistakenly made at West Point. There's a fair amount of those rascals out there. Yeah, I want to say there's something like 7,000 of them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. 7,924. It's um, basically struck from the wrong die, an unfinished proof obverse die. We saw, I don't know, maybe a month ago these surfaced and uh, there was rampant interest and uh, sales results uh, because, you know, it's whenever there's something new, it's hot and grabs people's attention. Now that we, we know how many are made or were made, how many exist, the market for them will settle and will reflect that, uh, you know, there's, when you have uncertainty that can come sometimes uh, really cause a bubble in the market because is there only one known, you know, is this unique? Is this, are they all like it? How many are out there? And until you don't know, there's people that on the chance that it's the only one out there, they'll go buy it and pay a strong amount. Gosh, when it turns out that there's, a bunch like it, like we had with the um, 2021 Dutch gold ducat. They accidentally used the reverse uh, die from last year, and and all of them were struck that way. So they're errors. They're rare in the sense of they're of interest because hey, these these weren't supposed to exist. 
but they're not rare because every single one that was struck like them, you know, is the same. So it's like I found a coin on Saturday, which I've seen before and uh, probably have somewhere else. Um, I found it in the junk, you know, world coin bin at a local shop. It's the 1972 Egyptian coin with UNICEF spelled incorrectly. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's C-F-E instead of C-E-F. And it's a neat coin, but it's not by any means rare. It's a dollar coin, $2 coin. But guess what? It, you know, it's fun. But all of them were made that way. So it's an error, but, you know, you can't point to it and go, oh, this is rare. Uh, no, the rare one would be the one that's spelled right. Uh, and there's so many examples like that where, uh, you know, until some clarity comes to the market, that uncertainty can really cause for, you know, lead to crazy prices and, you know, people jockeying for position to to get these. Well, now we know how many are out there. And uh, I think you'll see a much more mature market for them develop because uh, that information is critical. And so, you know, CoinWorld's glad to, to be able to uh, track that down from the Mint. Yeah, and when you mentioned uh, the rare one with connection to UNICEF would be the one spelled right, well, because all of them were spelled wrong, that would also be the fake one. So you don't really want to have that in your collection. But, you know, this brought to mind, though it's not necessarily valuable, it is unusual in these times, brought to mind an experience I had uh, last week where a, a friend of mine who is a grocery store manager pointed out that one of the advantages is that he has a chance to look at all of the coins, which, you know, you experienced that with your Walgreens, and I experienced it in my one time in retail as well. And they showed me the 1942p nickel that they uh, found in the till. And it's just like, huh, I remember I got one of those recently. And, you know, it's just like, this is so neat. And we talked about that. And it's just like, they're not collectors, but it's just little ideas like this that while that coin is not rare, the fact that it is going to be 80 years old next year meant something to them. And just the idea that it's not the run of the mill stuff that they see all the time. And it made me think about the coin roll hunters from Maine who were in Texas and found the 77D half dollar. And just the idea that all of these things seem to be interrelated. It doesn't have to be something that has a comma in it when you sell it or multiple commas for that matter. It's neat. It's fun. It's cool. It's interesting. It's all these things that provide hooks. Uh, the understanding that this 80-year-old coin, who knows what the journey was, the times that we had when this coin was minted, we were in World War II. Freshly, but in World War II. And just the idea that here it is now in 2021 going into 2022, and it's still out there. It's still out there doing its thing. It's still worth the same five cents it was. It won't buy as much as it did back then, yeah, but you it's can't still buy, there. Can't buy a Coke with that today. <laughs> no, no. There's, a, I mean, that's a, and that's a lot of thing. Reading about what a nickel bought when the nickels in the 30s and Nickelodeons and all that. And uh, I think it's Dave Bowers wrote that book that yeah. uh, the information about that. And it's just really neat to think the spending power of a nickel and. Uh, where the name came from for the five cent coin, that type of thing. But just the idea when you hold that in your hand right there and think about it, and it's just so cool. Now, there were more than 7,900 and some of those made, 
But, you know, so it's not rare by any stretch of the imagination, but how many of them survive that are not in a folder somewhere or not slabbed somewhere? And this one's out there working like the coins that were intended to work. So it just reminded me of that story right there. And it's just every story has value, whether that value is in the emotional value of coins found in a tin somewhere that have been generation after generation, or whether it's actually in what it's going to bring at an auction or what it's going to bring at a grader's table, that type of thing. They're all something to talk about. It's all something to interconnect. It was a conversation. In my case, it was a conversation that lasted five minutes. But it's just the idea of, hey, I know you know you like coins. I like coins. And especially because I found one that's really cool. I mean, they wouldn't show me a, a Washington Cross in the Delaware Quarter because that's just what it is. But the idea that these coins and the stories that they have and the, and the scenarios, you, don't, you never know what you're going to find. You never know what's out there. And, you know, it's funny, you mentioned a few minutes ago this idea of things that are uncommonly encountered, and that's a a great phrase to describe the subject of the interview this episode, because we got to sit down with Steve Album, who is a well-known expert on uh, Islamic and Oriental coins. Uh, sometimes they're called, um, you know, certainly the Islamic, Indian, uh, Asian, some, you know, certain areas of Asia. You know, he's he's the author of the uh, Islamic coin checklist, I believe, and uh, the namesake for uh, an auction house uh, and coin firm. He's going strong um, at, uh, you know, he, he's about as old as that uh, nickel you just mentioned, <laughs> not, not to um, reveal a, a secret, but, um, you know, the Islamic coin area is one that's you know, it's it's not that it's beyond my understanding because it's I know a little bit about it, but only what the experts say. And I look at the catalogs, and I I can you know, I can understand certain areas as being representative, different things. But it is a such a different area compared to you know some people look at world coins and oh that's you know that's them foreign coins that's them you know they kind of you know they don't understand it so they don't they don't want to mess with it. Well, you know, if you can't even do British and Australian and Canadian and, you know, Irish and some of these coins, you know, Islamic is way out there compared to that stuff. And so we wanted to to really learn from an expert, share uh, with you all what an expert had to say about the area, why it's exciting and interesting and, uh, you know, important. And so we have that uh, in a little bit. But um how many times have you seen an Islamic coin at a show? Probably, you know, if you're not going to a big, big show, you know, probably not that common. But when you encounter one, maybe, you know, you'll you'll be prepared to uh, understand it and maybe appreciate it a little better after uh, hearing his interview with us. Indeed. I mean, you never know where this journey is going to take you. You never know what, uh, what you're going to encounter and what you're going to see and what you're going to find interesting until you really get your head wrapped around that. And our interview with uh, Steve Album is really going to open up some eyes regarding some things. Is it for you? Maybe not. Maybe it isn't. But it plays a big role in this whole idea of what it, you know, commerce, of, uh, you know, of culture, of all the things that are connected to it. And it's always great to have the insight. What you do with it is your business. 
Yeah. But just having it is is so critical things. And it's just like it's so important that some of the things that I learned by listening to the podcast, I mean, historical values. And I think now would be a good time for us to take that step back into time that I enjoy so much. I got to admit, this is one of my favorite subjects is when we get a chance to look at the numismatic history lessons that you provide for us each and every week. I enjoy it as well. I think so many of us in the hobby do this because we love the history side of things. Certainly there's folks who become experts in areas from, you know, their scientific interest in metallurgy and and machining and all that. But um, the history is what does it for me. And if you go to this week in numismatic history, back to December 4, uh, 1931, that is the, the date sort of, that the Citizens Bank of Tenino, Washington failed, which led to the issuance of wooden script, which is uh, considered the first pieces of wooden money in the United States. Now, some sources say the date was December 5th or 7th. CoinWorld ran with December 4th when we had it in our uh, This Week in History. So we're going to say that with the caveat that it's around that time at the at at the worst, right? If we're if we're wrong, it's within a few days. But that wooden money, these were flat pieces, almost like larger, a little larger than a business card, smaller than a piece of you know federal a Federal Reserve note then in circulation, and which is the same size today, the small size. There are even some modern echoes of this because Tenino in twenty twenty uh, issued some wooden script as a COVID relief effort. And, uh, you know, I'd love to get my hands on a piece of the 2020 uh, version because it's such a contemporary numismatic item that speaks to the times in which it was issued. There was all, you know, early on in the pandemic, all this uncertainty, people were out of a job. This was long before uh, national you know, efforts to to stem the economic uh, losses had really um, been engaged with. And, uh, you know, here you had a local solution to a global issue. And it, it harkens back to what happened, you know, during the Depression 90 plus years ago, almost. I mean, next year, I think it'd be 90 years because the, the I think the woods came out in the following year then, um, 1932 or certainly around the end of 31 then, it created a whole new class of, of objects to collect. How cool is that? It all traces back to uh, this week in numismatic history, December 4th, 1931. So that leads to a question that I have, because one of the things, I mean, I'm not as versed in, I remember the story about the 2020 issuance, but I'm not as versed in wooden money. So my question becomes, did this predate the more popular wooden nickel or was the wooden nickel first? No, this this is generally said to have been the creation of the wooden nickel because a lot of these, you know, back then, again, a nickel was a lot of money. Uh, although, as I recall, I think the Tenino pieces were a quarter, Washington. That would be before Washington would appear on the quarter. But, you know, it's a town in Washington named for the president. And there may have been dollar denominations. And I don't know if there were 
other denominations, but I'm fairly certain a quarter and a dollar were two denominations of the wooden money. And this led to, like I say, this is credited as the uh, development, the genesis of the round wooden nickel that, you know, is about the size of a half dollar. Then, of course, you you had the... Um, the phrase don't take any wooden nickels and uh, collectors of wooden money often will wear that phrase with glee on a shirt or a hat because, and, and turn it on its head because they of course love to accept wooden nickels in their collecting pursuits. So uh, it is credited, like I say, as the origins of that. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it just opens up the idea that you know it's not every every bit of money is not metal uh the idea we went to the uh seminar on the primitive money and in fact we saw the curious currency book in the bookstore just yesterday and just the idea that other things have been used as means of commerce and then to hear about the wood and you know i just really would like to know more about that so i think i'm going to do some investigating on my own but meantime where would you like to go back in the coin world history right now? So, you know, we, we go back to the December 1st, 1976 issue for this week in coin world history. Uh, 1976, because I believe that was when Steve Album got his uh, professional start. And, um, hey, you know, it's not a bad year, the American Bicentennial. I was delighted to see two world stories on the cover of Coin World, that issue, I learned something because the uh, one of the stories was about this uh, book from Whitman covering world coinage and they uh, current coins of the world, which I've seen the book and I may have a, a, an edition of it, but I had never heard this current coins of the world book referred to as the white book. And of course, it's a play on Whitman's famous red book and blue book. Uh, this book has a generally white background cover with world coins and a globe and all that. This was sort of a smaller snapshotted version of modern world coins, 1850 to 1950. This was listing issues from 1955 forward, you know, which would have then been current in, in the mid seventies uh, around the world. And, uh, you know, it's interesting as a marker of numismatic publishing history. I don't think, again, I've heard anyone ever call it the white book, but that was how they were trying to market it to play off the red and blue pieces of their portfolio. So you could get a red book, a, a blue book and a white book, red, white, and blue. And, um, you know, that's not something they've continued with today. And of course, since then, you had the um, Krause Mischler catalogs, um, standard catalog of world coins. You know, what was first one catalog is now morphed into five or six different and fill, they fill quite the space on a bookshelf. Yeah, that was fun. And then right under that story was a story about Israel's Hanukkah coins, which we just uh, had the start of Hanukkah for those who celebrate the other day. You know, the other day we just had the start of that. Uh, and of course, we're in the middle of Hanukkah being an eight day event as we speak. But in 1976, the Hanukkah coins from Israel sold out within 10 days. It does speak to how different the market was at the time, you know, to get coins, world coins in the 60s, 70s, and even 80s, there was a, a much more, I won't say robust, but a much more public and 
not advanced, but it, it was the way these were promoted. You often, as, as I look back in back issues of Coin World, will see Paramount International uh, out of Englewood, Ohio, near Dayton. You know, they were distributors for a lot of stuff. You had other uh, organizations distributing this stuff. And there, there was more obvious ways to buy new issues. Whereas now it's it the market is so bifurcated and you have so many worldmen's who who they used to have offices here in the states and and they got rid of those over the last ten fifteen years and they just want you to buy direct from them and they'll ship it to you and you'll get it when you get it and I mean it's just it's just interesting interesting to see how uh, the world has changed in that regard. There were a lot of ads in Coin World for these things and and now we don't have them and in many cases. The market moves too fast to have an ad for a new product in the weekly and, you know, the limited mintages being that they are, you know, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, you had a lot fewer products, but you had much higher mintages. So, you know, that supported the larger marketing efforts that really were required to have the the infrastructure in place and to buy the ads and and to do all these promotions. And now there's just so much agility. I mean, you look at how the internet has upended traditional commerce and certainly numismatic commerce. There's coins with mintages of 555 pieces. You're not going to advertise that and have it come out two months later and it's already sold out and the market price on it has doubled or tripled maybe you know it, it's just a much different era so it's it's an interesting object lesson i see that you know maybe somebody else looking at the issue wouldn't see because they're just seeing oh it's a story about these uh, israeli coins and and that is one thing you know it's unfortunate but it's part of a, a design or a, a reaction to how the market was. You know, a lot of those 60s, 70s, 80s Israeli coins, I'm not a fan of the designs. They're a weak segment of the market. There are some later coins in the 1990s, 2000s, that, you know, gold coins with 444 mintage. Some of them have lots of biblical themes, different stories to tell. And, and you can get them for not a lot of money compared to the metal in them. So that's a double-edged sword. You know, there's a lot of them I think are, you know, they're not a, a pretty animal dominating the design. They're some traditional motif that may not have resonance outside a, a, a narrower audience. Thus, you know, the market is commensurate for that. You know, the market is smaller because of it. But uh, anyway, that, that's, that's what I found interesting on the uh, issue. What jumps out to you? Well, there's a couple of uh, letters that are quite interesting. One individual in Dallas, Texas, wrote a letter that said, on October 20th, 1974, I ordered one 1974 sterling silver American Revolution Bicentennial Administration medal. On November 5th, 1976, more than two years later, I finally received it. Then he goes on to thank a couple of folks that he got involved with this, including a couple of U.S. senators, and makes mention to the Mintmasters saying there is a problem and the Mint should be concerned about its inability to deliver customer orders in a timely fashion. No commercial coin dealer could get away with treating customers the way the Mint does. If it were not for an occasional insider helping out, coin collectors would go nuts in wholesale lots. 
I still have not received my 1976 uncirculated sets. Are you listening, San Francisco? Not sure if he ever did, um, but that's from James Bowman in Dallas, Texas. And another letter was written in response to two previous letters from uh, September. So uh, here again, times were a little different back then. And this was commenting on letters in the editor in the September 15th issue. It said, John Frame's letter stating the retirement of the $1 bill would cause more nickels and dimes to be received in change. That's not true. There is one coin that a lot of people are overlooking. Part of the idea of discontinuing the bill is to get the Eisenhower dollars that are collecting dust in bank vaults into circulation. I see no reason for the Mint to continue producing this coin if it doesn't circulate. Also, the letter of Joseph Gaffney suggests only two grades be used in describing silver dollars, circulated and uncirculated. Now, this is prior to grading. This idea is ridiculous. By this method, EFs and AUs would be considered circulated. Dealers would therefore be forced to adjust their prices high enough on so-called circulated coins in order to make up for the selling of the EFs and the AUs when their stock of low-grade coins becomes depleted. By this method, Mr. Gaffney might purchase a VG1895S for $200, really a $30 coin, from a dealer one week, while I send my order in later to the same dealer and receive an AU $600 plus coin for the same price of $200. Come on, let's be realistic. That's from Donald Miller out of Door, Michigan. So you can see that some things are, you know, just the way they are, and some things are a little different. That's all it is. There are going to be point counterpoints to just about everything these days. Two years to get your coins. Uh, if you know, you think collectors today were upset with the U.S. Mint with the um, anniversary Morgan and Peace dollar debacle. <laughs> yeah, that's just a few months, and they were extremely pleased when they showed up. So, yeah, but two years. I mean, that has to be the exception and not the rule, though. Well, Come sure. on, I mean, sure. yeah, it's just like that's. I mean, to the point of ridiculousness here. We don't know what the circumstances were. No. But it's just, I mean, not to call to mind that, you know, not saying Mr. Bowman's not telling the truth. He certainly is telling the truth. But the idea is that this was, uh, that's what ended up on the letters page on December 1st, 1976. Awesome. So lots to think about. And of course, the uh, the interview with Steve Album, we think, will give you a lot to think about as well. Uh, so without further ado, we're going to transition to the interview and uh, we will join you back here in uh, just a little bit. Uh, here is our interview with Steve Album. Learn all about Islamic coins. We did uh, certainly and uh, hope you enjoy it. No, the reason I got into Islamic coins is kind of surprising. Uh, back in the early 1960s, even at the end of the 50s, I was into foreign coins and my main interest back then was uh, Germany uh, both uh, copper coins from before 1871 and then up to the one mark was the larger silver coins were too expensive for me back then. And similarly, up to the 25 centavos from Mexico. And that's what I was collecting. And then I would buy these groups of general world coins because they were so cheap back in the early 60s. And there'd be some Islamic coins in them. And I probably acquired 20 or 30 of them, something like that. And then I found, much to my surprise, that a member of the uh, East Bay Coin Club, that would be Oakland, California, 
actually knew how to read and identify them. And so he showed me a little bit about it. He persuaded me to sit in a, in, in a class in uh, Arabic at uh, UC Berkeley. Uh, I was um, a, a student at Berkeley at that time. And that kind of got me going. And then I needed to take a year, about a year and a half off from university and retain my student deferment from the military legally. So the U.S. Army sent me to teach English in Tehran. Hmm. So I ended up in Iran. I was there for, uh, well, altogether for about nine months, maybe 10 months, and got collecting them because they were the cheapest things you could get. In fact, I, the first major purchase I made was how many could I, silver coins could I get for $100. So I went to a, a general antique and coin dealer in uh, Tehran, and I purchased 260 pieces for $100. Oh, wow. So, you know, we know today, or we hear of, you know, tourist trap type places selling counterfeits. Was, was that a concern with you back then, um, either because they weren't being made or they didn't proliferate like now, or because you could tell what was legitimate and what wasn't, or, or maybe both those reasons or something else I, don't, I can't even think of? Well, at that price level, there were no fakes. I mean, why bother if, if they're selling for 40 cents? You know, that just made no sense at all. But if you got in, interested in earlier coins, that would be to some extent Sasanian. They were very common, but especially Parthian, Roman, and various kinds of Greek coins, especially uh, Macedonian. There were loads of fakes in the tourist shops in Tehran already in the mid 19s. This was the mid 1960s. Uh, so, but they were so easy to tell. But anybody who really knew the coins could tell uh, because they were crudely made and just uh, very cheap and sold just as, as tourists as, as souvenirs. Uh, so those did exist, and they were very common over there in Tehran. Now, go out to the other parts of the, the, the country where tourists didn't really go. And you would never see anything like that. You would see maybe a few machine-struck modern coins, maybe some 18th, 19th century, or 17th to 19th century uh, hand-struck coins. But you really didn't see anything else. Early coins, ancient coins, would have been sent to whatever their contact would be in, in the capital, Tehran. You would find some in Shiraz, in Isfahan, and to my surprise, in, um, uh, in uh, what's the name of that town? Uh, Abadan, that's the, that's the uh, oil center right next to the, uh, the river. On the other side of the river would be Iraq. But in the smaller towns, you just didn't see anything old. And in Tehran, there was just so much to buy. And Tehran was an interesting city to live in back then. Probably still is today, but I'm afraid to go there right now. Understandably so. Uh so how many how many boxes how many crates did you mail back as a as a member of the army that uh, <laughs> of, of coins you're probably still opening the boxes up today and parsing them out no, actually uh, the uh, the first time I was there that was 1964 and I really didn't collect much that was before almost nothing that was before the uh, 18th century except for the Umayyad, because those are easy to read. 
that's eighth uh, century. And yes, I took them all to my cousin who was working there at the U.S. Embassy, and he mailed them back for me. That was very easy and it was free. Then when I went back the next year, that was my second half, t- teaching English again in uh, Tehran. There, I simply put them in a box and mailed them. <laughs> and nobody cared back then. Um, but you could put for, I know, something like 400 coins in each box. And I think I sent two boxes back to me. So you mentioned uh, one of the coins being an eight. 8th century. How far back do they go? How far back do Islamic coins go? Well, they started in, we actually have the actual year where they started. 651 AD. Wow. Do we know that? So we're celebrating the 1370th year. So, okay. Got it. How do we know that? Well, because they were fighting the Sasanians. And they drove out the Sasanians and the king, uh, Yazdegerd III, they drove him out, chased him up to the city of Marv, which is now in uh, Turkmenistan, and captured him and, and uh, killed him there. However, he had been striking coins, especially at the mint in, in uh, uh, Sistan. That would be the today the south east corner of of uh, Iran, but also part of the adjacent areas in Pakistan and uh, Afghanistan. And so the Muslims continued striking exactly the same coins with the picture and name of Yazdegerd, the same mint, SK for Sistan, only they added on the obverse, a little bit of Arabic, Bismillah, in the name of God, in the name of Allah. And they were struck with the same year, year 20, of Yazdegerd, and they kept the year 20 for 15 years. Then they finally got to using real dates. Um, this is what I actually gave the talk to uh, to Los Angeles a few days ago. It's all about the Sassan- Arab Sasanian coinage, which is extremely complex. So uh, it all sounds complex to me, somebody who's you know not really well versed in it. I mean, I, I look at the auction catalogs and I have some references behind me. But, you know, I certainly don't understand it on a, a large level. But uh, I'm curious, you, you touched upon, you, you know, you mentioned Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Turkmenistan. It seems like the general theme of Islamic coins covers a vast area. And weren't there like simultaneously different tribes or peoples all over here? I mean, it, it's a lot to sort of unpack, isn't it? If you look at the Umayyads, they took power in 661. That was 10 years after the first coins were produced. And, but they didn't change the design until much later, until the, um, about 700 AD. In uh, 737, I believe is the year, give, give or take one, the Umayyads met their first defeats, major defeats. They were defeated near the city of Poitiers, in France, and in the same year, they were defeated at Khotan, which is in uh, in um, Xinjiang, now part of China, in the same year. So all that area developed Islamic coins. Now, France never actually did, but Spain certainly did. Spain was under Arab rule for 400 years. 
uh, and a part of it in the South even, lo even longer until finally they were kicked out in the very same year that Christopher Columbus reached the Americas, 1492, same year. Okay. Yeah, that, that's why there's that uh, famous church in Spain that has the, it was um, Catholic and it was uh, Arab, uh, Arabic. And I mean, I guess that's, you know, the Hagia Sophia in, in Istanbul as well. So, so this is a wide range uh, of, you know, a, a huge swath of, of the globe that was affected by this or can fall under this um, terminology. It also went as far as uh, Southeast Asia. If you look at the ancient coins of the area, not the ancient, but the uh, early medieval coins, no, sorry, late medieval and early modern coins from uh, places like Malaysia, that's also in Arabic. And then they developed their own way of writing their own language in the Arabic script. And you find those on the coins. Um, let's see, I think the last one's around 1930 on the trade dollars issued by the British. That also has the, um, I guess that would be Malay language, but in the Arabic script, 1930, or a little after 30. I think there's 34 and 35 real rarities. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, and Spain uh, was under the Umayyads. They fled from, from Syria and established their own kingdom in Spain and lasted there for almost 300 years. And then it all broke down into a whole bunch of little small states. And then others can't, I won't go into the details, but it remained large. The southern half of Spain re remained Islamic basically up till the 1200s. And then it, uh, except for one little area, it all became Christian. Uh, you can still go, even in Portugal, you can still go to sites that were built by the uh, Arabs during that those, hundred, those several hundred years. I saw them when I was traveling around uh, I can't remember the name. It's it's part of part of uh, Portugal. So you mentioned Asia and getting into Europe, and obviously North Africa. How much uh, influence was there into the continent of Africa? That's again an interesting question, <laughs> and a rather complex question. The Arabs and Iranians both moved down the East African coast and established ports as far down as the modern state of uh, Tanzania. And they started striking coins there, probably the first ones around 1200 AD. And they were struck predominantly in uh, Zanzibar, which is the island off the coast of uh, Tanzania. And then they continued to have them in various places. Um, the, most of the work on those was done by uh, a, a couple of scholars at uh, Oxford University, published back in the well, in the 1950s, 30s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And uh, then I published a bunch of it in, uh, in Oxford in uh, was it 1998, because they have quite an important collection of them. And those can, can be found far away. They actually found a few of those Zanzibar copper coins oh, were yeah. found. I, I just said, oh, yeah, I, I have some of them. Well, they're very, they used to be very common, but they're kind of rare today. But they actually found some of an excavation at the north coast of Australia. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. So, because trade existed. I mean, if you look at well, Madagascar, the people and the language is Java, as Javanese. They came from that southeast uh, 
Asia and settled in on the island, the, the huge island of uh, Madagascar. So, yeah, trade existed. We find, they find uh, a lot of Islamic coins are found in the western part of China. In fact, back in, was it 2014, I think, no, 2004 or 2005, they, at the museum there, they had a lot of Islamic coins that had been found at various sites in that area that um, they didn't know very much about it. There was really very few people who could read them and understand them. They could read the Arabic because that was quite common for the Muslims, which is the majority of the population in Xinjiang. But uh, you know, they didn't know anything about the history. They didn't have books or anything about it. Uh, they did at the museum in, uh, in uh, Shanghai. And they also have found Islamic coins at various sites uh, from the, let's say, uh, well, from as early as the, I guess, ninth uh, century are found occasionally in around, um, let's say, um, the central China because there was trade and that was the, gold, the, the Silk Road. The Silk Road existed starting probably in the fourth century AD, uh, the late Roman uh, interest in the in in uh, silk, although it probably was even earlier than that. But the the roots, as they became well known, developed starting in the in the fourth century A.D. And so, any coins that were produced in the western part will end up at the east as well. Uh, in fact, one of the rarest coins that I got in Iran, probably the rarest coin. I bought from a guy selling junk on the sidewalk, and it was, I think it was a half, was it half real, or one real, I can't remember which now, of Guatemala. It was hmm. listed in KM as only three known. How did one, little tiny silver coin, how did it get to, not Tehran, but the small town of Ardabil, which is close to the border with uh, Azerbaijan? And I bought it for something like 15 cents. How did it get there? I'm going to guess that it was on somebody's necklace or something like that, probably a, a sailor, because they would make a, a, uh, take coins that they found in different places and make a necklace out of it. And somehow one coin dropped out and ended up in Iran because the ship had gone there. Hmm. I don't know if you've heard about the find of they found now between 20 and 25 late 17th century Yemeni coins have been found in the United States. Have you heard about that? No. no. Where was this? They found the first ones about 20 years ago, uh, mostly in, uh, in Rhode Island. But they found them from, uh, let's see, the furthest north would be the coastal area of, uh, of uh, I don't think there's any from Maine. But they found them from Massachusetts down to North Carolina. Wow. And we figured that this was probably change that some ship had that came from Aden in Yemen. That was an important port and came to the United States. And people had these coins. Oh, these are no good here. And they threw them away. Tiny little debased silver coins. What do you do? You throw them away. And or they lost them or whatever, but they have found a little over 20. It's been published now uh, in Massachusetts or in Rhode Island. I forget which. 
it's a guy named uh, uh, Jim Bailey in uh, Rhode Island who I who was in charge of uh, published. Well, I identified the coins for them and he publishes them and all that. Yes, we actually did have a story about that a few years ago. I remember it now. Yeah, it, exactly. it was all it was all coming becoming coming back to me as, as you were saying it. So um, I just it, it didn't occur to me when you said Yemeni that that was the Bailey story. But uh, the objects of trade, uh, this speaks to how widely used they were. You talked about reading script on them. That is the one major thing that characterizes uh, Islamic coins, right? Is that most of them, at least for many, many years until recent times, do not have images of real people. And, and talk about how that came to be and, and the reason behind that. That is very simple. That goes back to their calendar the year 77, that's uh, 694, 95 AD. And they decided to get rid of all the old types of coins and we're gonna do a purely Islamic coin. And they decided that the Islamic coin would have only inscriptions, no pictures. And at the beginning, not even the name of a mint. In fact, the first uh, hundred years of, of uh, gold has no mint name at all. And the first, uh, what, what, roughly 80, 90 years, didn't have any names of people at all. Only later were they allowed to put like the name of the caliph or the name of a governor or something like that. It varied from region to region. Um, but pictures, no. There are a few exceptions in when you get to the uh, 12th century and you get these very strange coins in copper because copper was not under the same restrictions. Copper was local coinage, basically a uh, what I call civic coinage. Each city did its own, however, however the heck they wanted to do it. The rules on silver and gold did not apply to copper. And so you do find even a couple with, with pictures on them, very few. Even that they kind of gave up. But, uh, you know, animals and designs and so on, that stayed on whenever they wanted to, but much of the time they didn't. This remained the case until the first actual images were put on coins, circulating coins. I'll come back to that in a moment. In uh, Iran, in uh, the late 19th century, that was the first. The, even the Turks didn't do it in the Ottoman Empire, North Africa. Well, they were going probably would have done it in Algeria, except that was taken over by the French, and they used French coins over there until uh, 1962. Uh, but um, there is a very strange series in copper where they decided in an area around the city of Mardin, that is in southeastern uh, Turkey today, they decided to strike coins there and a few other cities in that area with copies of pictures that had been on ancient coins. So you can find uh, coins that they took from coins of Alexander the Great. Now, those coins were you know, over a thousand years old then, but they had a picture and let's copy it. And that's a whole bunch of them. There's a couple of important books have been written on this subject. The most important one by, um, God, I can't remember the name now. It's, it's sales. And um, so uh, there was a religious reason that there was no depictions of people on there. I think that's probably important to, to specify. It, it became religious later. 
Oh, okay. First, okay. At first, it was only because they only wanted the coinage to be something that everybody would accept, that would fit into anything, and they didn't want to have anything that was a Byzantine Roman, and they didn't want anything that was Iranian Sasanian any longer. So that's why they took the pictures off. In fact, the first experimental coins that were done in the 690s, and there's a whole bunch of different ones, uh, mostly in silver, done both in uh, Syria and Iraq and Iran. There's, there's uh, at least five distinct ones, but they had pictures, including a picture of the caliph. Uh, that would have been um, Abdul Malik at that time. He was the caliph from, well, in their calendar, what's in our calendar would be roughly uh, 685 to 705 AD. And the first coins, both in silver and in uh, copper, had his picture on it. And he's holding a nice, uh, uh, long a sword. And the copper is very, very common. It's called standing caliph, copper coins. Cheap ones go into junk lots. <laughs> uh, and But really nice ones are quite popular today. Silver is extremely rare. There are only a few known. And these are coins that would sell in the 10 to... $50,000 range, maybe even more for some of them. And then they said, no, let's forget all of this. We're going to have something that everybody would accept. Remember that in Christianity, there were similar things going on at the same time where they also refused images. The same thing happened with some of the Byzantine coinage. I can't remember what that group was called. as any fortnight just escapes me now. But, uh, Another re reason that's involved was in 692, Byzantine coinage for the first time portrayed Jesus Christ. And that was the first time. There had been some earlier copper coins that showed him uh, actually a couple, couple hundred years earlier. But on gold and silver, this was the first, uh, gold only at the beginning, it was the first time on, in uh, 692, we know the year from uh, documents that have survived. And so that's the same year that the standing caliph coins began. Uh, we don't know which came first. It's a bit like the, you know, the um, chicken and the egg, which came first, or the genuine and the fake, which came first when it comes to coins. They said, okay, we're going to do something that is similar to what the other Christians were doing, and we're going to do it for Islam, and it stuck and it, for a thousand years. Sure, the inscriptions and so on changed over the centuries. And there were a few pictures in, what was it, in the 12, early 1240s in the um, Celtic area in what's now Turkey. They issued silver and gold. Is it gold too? No, just silver coins with um, the lion and sun. Yes. And they also had issued some silver coins and a few copper, a few gold coins with a man on horseback. There's one dating uh, in our calendar would be uh, 1248. It's a moderately common coin, very, very popular. It's one of the Seljuk coins from Sivas, city in north central uh, Turkey today. And that has a picture of the governor, whatever, it doesn't say what he is, the governor, whatever, uh, on horseback. Uh, yeah. And then the Mongols came in. <laughs> and that makes it even more complicated. 
Oh boy, I I, I want to talk about that Seljuks of, of Rome coin. I I have it's probably one of the few Islamic coins I have. I bought about five six years ago, and um, it's just that it's a almost a cute coin with the lion and the sun. But one series of coins Islamic that I can't afford are the zodiac uh, ones. Can you talk about when those came to be and why they were issued? Because as I recall from the last five years or so, particularly your auctions and London auctions, um, they've been very popular and, and some of them are very rare. Okay. That is again, a rather complex issue. The main okay. things that we talk about for the Zodiac are actually the ones that are from India that were issued by John Gear, and they're dated uh, sort of around the middle of his reign. So that would work out to approximately 16 teens to the 1620s and actually the last ones in the 1630s and first they did some really good Muslim concept they have a picture of the presumably the emperor holding a well what else a glass of wine drinking from it that's another very rare coin I mean we've sold a couple of those in auction and today they go in the 50 to 100 thousand dollar range or more the Zodiac comes in both silver and gold. Even the silver is many thousands for genuine ones. And of course, they would copy them and make souvenir pieces, uh, probably still up till today. And even those are popular. I mean, if you can get the, eight, the 18th century and 19th century copies, even those go to $50, $100 each in the wow. silver. Wow. So when you're seeing those kind of values and seeing values escalate like that, I mean, we think back in what we have here in this country and the big deal about the $18.87 million for the $20 gold coin. What are some of the more expensive types of Islamic coins that we see you see when you have your auctions? Well, in general, there are some early gold coins in the experimental period uh, that would be between in our calendars and six in the mid-690s, some of them dated, some of them not, some of them with the pure Arabic note of pictures and others with the picture of the, um, uh, the standing caliph. Those coins, the, the last couple that have been in auction have gone in the million-dollar range. Hmm. We've never had one. The year 77, that's the very first, that's their count, that's 690. Uh, 696 97 in our calendar uh the, yeah, the this, of, this, this is a sore spot with you i think or at least uh a, a, a touchy subject maybe <laughs> the, the 77 gold coin well let me tell you about the 77 i'll tell you a little more about it in 1971 one of them appeared in an auction in germany they were estimating it at uh, i believe it was 600 to 800 which was roughly at that time $150 to $200. It didn't sell. They offered it to me for about $120. I thought that was too much and I didn't buy it. Oh. 11 years later, in Switzerland, one sold at a Swiss auction for over $200,000. What had happened? Very simple. In 1974, they upped the price of oil to four times and they doubled it again in 79. That meant money flo flowed into both the Arab and uh, 
Iranian areas in humongous amounts. And they started buying everything they could, could get their hands on. And they didn't care what it, what it cost because they had so much money. Who cares? I actually saw one of the sheikhs of uh, Qatar. I won't use the word that he used, but there was a coin that was probably at the time worth around uh, 800 pounds, uh, English pounds. It was in a London auction. And, and they're selling now for 150 to 200,000, which of course is about a third what they were selling for in the early 1980s. But now, if you want one, there are so many fakes around and the fakes are really well done today. We are offered a fake on the average of once every month or two. Oh, wow. Yeah, I will deal in them. Yeah, of course. So, so given the complexities of the issues, uh, the wide range, the potential for fakes, how do people get started in this area and what, what advice would you have for them? Well, that's an interesting question. I'm going to divide it into three sections by metal. In, we'll start with the gold, because gold is now in this, what, 1750 an ounce, 1760 an ounce, something like that. Even a gold dinar, which typically weighs in the early times about 4.2 grams, that's uh, $220 or $210, something like that. We find that a lot of coins at both our auction and other auctions, before you add the buyer's fee, actually sell for under melt. Uh, a lot of them, especially you know, low quality and common types. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention that the year 77, 78 is the popular coin, and that sells for double what a 79 sells for, um, around uh, uh, 800 to 1,000. Whew. Slightly cheaper than the 77. Yeah. <laughs> but if you want, the Umayyad uh, gold is certainly the most popular. And if you want one that's, you know, sort of VF or fine to very fine or VF with a scratch or two, uh, we're talking it right now in the 400 to 600 range. Okay, then we can go to silver. There is rare silver and there is common silver. And there is crappy looking silver. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, and if you just want to have the ba basic types of the more common dynasties, we're probably talking the coins that you can buy in the fifteen to fifty, um, fifteen to fifty dollar range. They're not expensive. If you start to get into the rare types and so on, then we start to talk about many, many thousands, because of uh, changes in the Middle East. Prices have come down a lot over the past ten years. Copper, well, that's even more complicated because so much of it is ugly, worn, damaged, corroded. You know, a lot of those, is, we sell big lots of those that end up uh, selling for a buck a piece. Uh, sometimes even with a few nice coins in them. Uh, usually go, the most commonly is 2 to $4 per coin if it's halfway decent. And you can collect a lot of copper coins, decent looking ones, in the, uh, let's say, in the $10 to $100 range. Obviously, you're not going to get rarities, but you, you could build a really large general collection of copper and silver at a very reasonable price. I'm going to make one criticism of uh, Coin World right now. You don't have enough in there about 
the lower priced affordable material, be it American or foreign or even ancient. And I think that's one of the things that there should be more of. You know, I see that there's a talk about an American coin and it's, but they'll only talk about MS-65, whereas most people can only afford maybe a VG or a fine, but they don't say, you don't say enough about that. So I can yeah. be criti critical <laughs> of this. In a, hey, in a, and that a, will not be on the edit room floor. Trust me. Yeah. We're not cutting that out. No, no and, 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 and I, you know, I, I take that criticism to heart because when I write about world coins, I try to do a range uh, and I and I have some auction houses ask me, well, why do you write about that item? It's only a two hundred dollar item. And I said, well, you know, two hundred dollars. A lot of our readers can go or in this case, listeners can go get a two hundred dollar coin. They can't get a two hundred thousand dollar coin or ten thousand dollar coin. You're right, especially on the U.S. side of things. If we have a weakness, that's it. Uh, I, One I of the things that has disappeared things like junk boxes we still have them and we still bring them to shows that where we can drive to we actually sold quite a bit of it we sold over the last uh no last year was it was a, the early one this year was canceled but last february or maybe it was the year before we sold almost two thousand dollars worth of junk box coins at the little local show here in San, in uh, santa rosa yeah uh, we had one guy, because we brought the, th the, you know, we had him priced from 25 cents up to $10. And we had one man, he spent like $700 out of the junk boxes. The thing is a lot, and that was, oh, I don't know, several hundred coins. He was collecting general world coins. Yep. Yeah. No, I love that. I, <laughs> that's what I do. If you've seen me at a show, that's what I did at the fun show, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, just, and, and I know, um, Larry's wife and Larry were at the same one table. We were at the same table looking through cheap two by two stuff. It's that's the fun of it. That's why I mean, you know, I'm able to pull something to have it imaged uh, because it's a $3 coin. It's a $5 coin. You're not going to find that at a, you know, a big auction house in a, in a slab, but no. it, it's an item whose story needs telling and needs sharing. So that, that's awesome. And that's and absolutely correct, because the idea is that there's beauty in these. The, uh, the fact that it's not the, uh, the finest and it's not the, the highest price tag is irrelevant, especially to a beginning collector or a young collector or someone you're trying to get interested into the hobby, especially, and, and to grow that. I mean, it's so important that we understand that it is is a large world. And, and there's a lot of joy that can come from my father-in-law is a collector of birth year coins. And uh, that goes back a few years. And, you know, just the idea that uh, we get the chance to see these. Now, he's never, ever, probably ever going to get one in a slab, but he still has his collection. He's proud of it. I think you're absolutely right about that. And I only use the most expensive reference because that seems to be the item that the, is attracted. It's the top of the pyramid, so to speak. But uh, there is a God must have loved the common man because he made so many of us is the way I look at it. So but yeah. I think what's important here, too, is uh, my, my final comment that I have to offer here is as you talk about learning more and, and getting involved in this, uh, Islamic coins are no different than any other type of coin, and that is how, how you get educated about this and how you get informed about this. And, and you've, uh, you've committed yourself many, many years now 
to seeing that folks who are interested have accurate and complete information. And I want to, I applaud you for that. One of the things I do like on uh, Namista, when ah, they yeah. do the modern, modern coins of the Middle East, they often have the Arabic written out in translation. Numista is a great website. Yeah, I like it very much. It's still, uh, uh, you know, they don't have a lot yet. It'll yeah. take another 10 years probably to really build <laughs> it up. Yeah, but, but it's a great starting point, just like uh, WorldCoin Gallery and some of the others. And, of course, a great starting point is the checklist of Islamic coins by yours truly. Um, the third edition is the newest. What's the word on the update, uh, edition number four? I wanted to somehow was hoping to have it out this year. I don't know if that's going to happen. I add something to it all the time. The last time I added something to it was uh, uh, about half an hour before you close. You called. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I, yeah, I saw something on uh, Zeno, and I said, "Oh yeah, I better mention that." And I just changed. I just added about I think three words at some point. So yeah, oh, okay. I'm ready to change it today. That, that's still pretty cool. And and for those who are listening, if you don't want to wait for the fourth edition, your company provides a PDF version of the third edition available for download free at the website stevealbum.com. So that speaks to the dedication and service to the hobby, getting the information out there and, and allowing people to access it so that there is a thriving market for those those objects. I'll go a step further on this. With this, with uh, I collect something. I'm still a collector. I can't give it up. I mean, I sold my Islamic coin collection 33 years ago. Uh, it went to a museum in uh, Tübingen in Germany, at the University of Tübingen, hmm. and that was in 19. Well, started 1987 and then finished the sale in the following year. Oh, and then I had to keep doing basic catalog of the collection, which meant I had to sit and I said, I lived in uh, Tübingen for five months. Lovely town, by the way, <laughs> uh, in Germany. Wow. If you really want to know, it was, I didn't sell it to the university. I sold it to a company that would donate it to the university for a tax write-off. Ah, <laughs> hey, even better. And, heard, and I'm going to tell you the name of the company, Volkswagen. Ah, <laughs> Familiar with that. <laughs> we all know that one. And they still make great cars. Anyway. Uh, your, your mileage may vary. <laughs> but I still collect. And I collect modern souvenir to, um, tokens and medals of California. Oh, fun. And, yeah. And, you know, most of these are going to cost me in the $1 to $10 range each. Yeah. So there's no investment here. It's just fun. Period. I mean, obviously... If they're silver, one ounce silver medals are going to cost me thirty to sixty dollars each. They're not yeah. cheap, but that's still not much. Yeah, and you have the floor of the the silver value there as well. And and so you it, you're a California boy through and through. It sounds like, notwithstanding the uh, time in Iran and the time time in Germany and all that, uh, you you must have California in your blood if you if you collect tokens and medals of, of your home state, just like I'm from Missouri and I collect Missouri tokens and medals. <laughs> well, let me put it this way. I'm not originally from California. Oh, wow. I grew up in 
Brooklyn, New York, and the last three years in uh, Queens, New York. Yes, yes. Right. But, and, and, and when the Dodgers moved west, you followed. That is correct. The same year. My <laughs> father bought a business and we moved to Vallejo, California. Well, you're 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 still a Californian then. You yeah, you well, I graduated long Vallejo enough. High School, so yeah, must be Californian. And well, very good. I've, but um, I I do think that one of the problems in the numismatic trade today is that there's not enough information for the average collector who really can't afford to spend more than a hundred dollars a month. And that you know, I go to the local coin club. Uh, here we, we call it the Redwood Empire Coin Club. Oh yeah, uh, in uh, Santa Rosa, and most of the people there collecting coins that are costing under ten dollars. I sometimes will bring one of my junk boxes, like the fifty cent junk box, along, and we'll, they'll sell very many. I mean, somebody will pick out eight coins. That's fine, but they're looking for something. These are, all, of course, they're no U.S. coin. I don't have much in U.S. coins. We do get a few in our auctions because they come with consignments. But most of the people, and I would you know, collect really the very inexpensive stuff. And I would assume that that's probably true of coin clubs coast to coast. Mm -hmm. Something else. Uh, would it be okay once in a while for me to write for Coin World a short article on cheap coins? Yeah, well, let's um, let's loop the uh, editor in on that discussion. But I, I love the idea. Um, in fact, the the monthly issue that was just published by the time this podcast is published, uh, the monthly issue, the November monthly issue, the World Coin feature story is all about World Coins depicting Americans, and aside from a couple gold coins mentioned. Everything in there is $100 or less. You know, I, I make reference to a, a coin that's from Monaco that's on a different page that's very expensive. But I say, you know, if, if you don't want to go buy this $3,000 rarity, you can go spend 20 bucks on this other coin. And, you know, it, it's, um, you know, Princess Grace. So, so yeah, let, let's, let's talk about that after the show. But, um, you know, we definitely uh, appreciate the need for coverage of affordable things because Larry and I are at that end. Like we suspect many listeners are of the show. Yeah. This has been interesting. Uh, this is the first time I've actually done something that's uh, I guess you call this a uh, podcast. Is that yes. correct? Yes. First time I've ever done that. It's never too late to try something new. And, and we loved uh, talking to you today about this and, and learning uh, really, uh, you know, about, it's just such a fascinating area. And this is just for, for the listeners out there, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, go check it out, you know, and, and, you know, some folks, it's not going to be for you, but there's going to be somebody who, who gets excited by this and, and dives deep and boy, uh, can, can you get um, a lot of enjoyment Maybe a little bit of trouble you know, if you spend too much, <laughs> but uh, boy, boy, is this uh, open up a whole new road to you in the hobby. So thank you so much for being here today. Well, I enjoyed this, Jeff and Larry. And that was our interview with Steve Album, and uh, hope that you found it educational and elucidating and uh, all those fun words to say. It's such a 
different area of the hobby, and uh, it's not something maybe that you're going to you know be able to jump right in uh, the first day, but um, you know, hopefully you got a few pointers if, if you're interested to, um, to get oriented around uh, where to begin and, and how no to pun intended, it. no pun yeah, intended. Yeah, yeah. 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 Anyway, uh, on that note, Hey, you know, it's, um, it's been a long show. It's been a long time. Let's um, let's let everyone go uh, with uh, good thoughts, with good wishes for another week in the hobby. Uh, we thank CoinWorld Plus, of course. We're looking forward to uh, we'll have some some new fun things uh, episodes coming uh, to close out this year, and we're getting ready for the shows in early 2022. Well, yeah, and see, you'll notice that he's blowing off the trivia question this week because he's going to take another week to look it up. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> I would have used. I would have done the same thing. But no, we're very thankful for the fact that you know, 140 episodes into this, we definitely do appreciate all the support we've gotten. Uh, we appreciate the feedback. Appreciate uh, all the suggestions. I'm on my way now to look up uh, a wooden money expert so I can get the, that individual on the podcast in the near future as well. We do have some exciting guests coming up and our thanks to Coin World Plus for supporting this effort throughout the uh, the parts of 2021 in which they've gotten involved with us here. You need to check it out, coinworldplus.com for your slab coins there, no question. Yes, indeed, we are rolling on in the month of December. Hope this finds everyone well and hope that your numismatic journey is going along the way you want it to go. In the meantime, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Coin World Plus is your new way to collect. Manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about Coin World Plus at coinworldplus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store.